Father God, we thank you so very much for this day, for the scriptures, for your story of redemption and how you have redeemed your people and how we get to be a part of your people, how you have grafted us into your family tree, how you have grafted us into your story. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy uh, for us and the fact that you have partnered with us to be part of what you continue to do in the world, continues to amaze us and thrill us. And Father, we pray that you help us to never lose the wonder and awe uh, that we get to be part of this wonderful story because of Jesus. Father, we pray that tonight and every night and every day that you'll help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to walk by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's start with a little bit of a review um, I, I've been telling you the last couple weeks, encouraging you to do a little bit of memory work. So uh, I'm gonna, we're going to test ourselves tonight. So uh, anybody remember number one, the first, the first point? Chosen. chosen. Yes, chosen. Abraham, chosen. Uh, Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and how this family specifically was chosen to bring the blessings of God to all the families and all the nations of the earth. So number one was chosen. Number two was liberated. Yeah, that's what we talked about last, last week. The exodus from Egypt, God liberated his people from slavery and how that same language and that same idea continues to be true as Jesus is our rescuer, our savior who is liberating us from slavery to sin, the evil behind the evil in the world. Okay, so we talked about chosen and liberated. Tonight we're going to talk about number three, which is wandering, right? Wandering. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Number four, victorious. Okay, the conquering of Canaan. Number five, Lawless, the period of the judges, right? Lawless time. There was no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Number six, ruled, right? Ruled. King Saul uh, rules over the people. So finally they have a king, uh, but he's not what they thought he was going to be. He doesn't, he doesn't bring the kind of life that they hoped that he would bring. So they were, they're ruled by a king. Um, and then number seven, kind of a more positive one. United, so under the reign of King David, the people are united. All of the tribes of Israel are united. And then, of course, comes after that, divided. So after David um, and Solomon, then the kingdom is divided under Rehoboam. We'll talk about that soon. Uh, number nine, exiled, exiled, off to Assyria and off to Babylon because of their sin and idolatry, exiled in Assyria and then finally in Babylon. And then Returned. So the people come back to Israel, but alas, they're still kind of an exiled people. Even though they're back home, home is not really home. Home isn't what they remembered it to be. It isn't what they hoped that it would be. All of the promises that God had made and continued to make through the prophets still don't really seem to be true in the way that they were described. And so they find themselves... Waiting, waiting. So we have this period of waiting, the post-exilic after the exile and the intertestamental period. So we'll continue talking about all those. But again, I encourage you to take a picture of that, write those down, write it on your heart, on your mind, uh, and think about those periods of Israel's history because all of this is leading to Jesus. And so that's what we want to do every single week is not only talk about this period of Israel's history and kind of take this little snapshot, 
but we want to talk about how, how does this particular period in Israel's history point forward to and create this waiting and anticipation in us, in us, right? In fact, most of the world right now has been, or the, the Christianized world has been talking about Advent, right? Advent. And maybe you didn't grow up like I did. I didn't grow up hearing that word or knowing what that word meant other than a calendar. But really, Advent is about the, the coming of Jesus. So it's the anticipation of his first coming. And then there's also the anticipation that we're in now of his second coming. So that idea of waiting for the coming Messiah is what Israel was doing for their whole period of life, not just during this 11th this 11th period of history, but throughout all of Israel's history, they were waiting for the one that would crush the serpent's head, the one who would be the, the true king that David almost was, that David points forward to, the one who would be a much better judge than Samson, a much better king than David, a much better uh, lawgiver than Moses, a much better deliverer than Moses. All of these periods of Israel's history point forward to the ultimate one that is finally fulfilled in Jesus. And, and again, we find ourselves continuing to wait. Now we know who we're waiting for specifically, but we continue to wait for his second coming and for the, the fruition and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Okay, so we talked about last week liberated and how the people were liberated from, from slavery in Egypt, how they were brought out of slavery. But I kind of want to go back for just a second and I want us to think about, we didn't really talk about creation and the fall when we talked about Genesis because that's where we tend to spend most of our time and attention is on creation and the fall. And there's a good reason we spend most of our time there. However, most of Genesis is talking about who? Abraham and Abraham's family, right? And, and so we, we kind of need to go back at least for a second and talk about how all of humanity came from one couple, right? Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve ate, the, they did the one thing they were told not to do. They ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, they were, what? Banished is a good word. What else? Exiled is another word, right? They, they were exiled from the garden. They were banished from the garden. And, and when they were banished from the garden, and specifically they were banished from the garden because what was in the garden that God wanted to cut off access to? The tree of life, right? Some even speculate that maybe God in his mercy and love didn't want them to live forever in that state. Because now they were fallen and they were broken. Now there was hostility between man and woman, between humankind and humankind, between God and human, and even between human and earth. The land that we lived on, everything was chaotic. Everything was tension-filled. Everything was, was filled with, with conflict now. And in God's mercy, he didn't want them to live forever in that state. But he warned them that when they ate of this tree if they ate of this tree, that they would bring death, right? And so they're cut off from the tree of life. But the entirety of the story of scripture is God bringing humanity back to the paradiso, the garden, the paradise of God, 
where the tree of life resides. The book of Revelation describes that exact thing, that humanity is brought back to the paradise of God, back to the garden of God, where the tree of life is. So God is continually, step by step by step, bringing people, humanity, back to the garden. Now, if you remember, when God exiled Adam and Eve from the garden, what did he put at the edge of the garden to guard the garden and keep them from coming back in? There's a CH word I'm looking for. Cherubim, okay, cherubim. Now, now we have this tendency to picture a singular cherub, right? Cherub is singular, plural is cherubim. So we have this tendency to picture a cherub as what? How do we picture cherubs usually? Fat little, yeah, Valentine baby angel, right? Little chubby baby with wings, you know, with a playing a harp or shooting his bow and arrow. That's not what a cherub looks like in biblical literature. That's not what a cherub looked like in ancient history. In fact, here's a picture of a, a cherub, um, if you can see. So the cherubim, uh, were, were sort of mashup creatures, sometimes with the body of a lion, the wings of like an eagle, the face of a human. So sort of a, a hybrid of all of these beasts. But that's really what they were, is they're pictured as, as beasts. And this cherub is at the throne of a Canaanite goddess. So that idea of cherub, cherubim, was very popular in the ancient world. So they kind of knew what this sort of creature was. And it was this sort of creature that was guarding the way back into the Garden of Eden. In fact, this is the way cherubim were talked about in the ancient world as they guarded sacred places. They guarded the place where God was. So the the Garden of Eden, humans are exiled from the garden And there are cherubim that guard the way so that you you can't get back into the paradise of God where God's presence is and where the tree of life is until where's the next time we see the cherubim? Ark of the Covenant. Yes, the Ark of the Covenant. So after, after Israel is rescued, after the Hebrew people are rescued out of slavery in Egypt and brought out of, of slavery, they cross through the Red Sea. We talked about all of that last week. Then they, they come to Mount Sinai where they're given the law, but also given instructions for the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, which is a mobile temple, right? A mobile temple. And, and Inside the mobile temple, inside the tabernacle, inside the tent, there is a place called the most holy place or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant, God's covenant box with Israel was. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant are cherubim. Now, I always pictured them as like people with wings, like we typically think of angels, but probably more like this, right? It's probably more like something with like a a body of a beast, maybe the face of a human and, and wings that, that touched one another on top of the ark. Look at what Exodus chapter 25 says. So again, they've, they've left Egypt and they are receiving the law and these instructions. And they're told, you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. So again, just like you saw the, the Canaanite goddess, that, that idol, that was sitting up on top of her, her throne is on top of the cherub, on top of the cherubim, God's, God's Ark of the Covenant has a 
mercy seat. The top of it, the box, the lid of the box is called the mercy seat. It's as if God's throne is above these cherubim, right? So you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So so what is the purpose besides holding stuff, besides holding the Ten Commandments and, and a few other things, besides holding things, what's the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant? This is the place where the people meet with God, right? Now, again, when we think back, what's the last time we saw the cherub? What's, when's the last time we saw these cherubim? They're guarding the way back into the, the presence of God. They're guarding the, the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God. And, and so now we're starting to see, okay, so maybe with our spiritual imaginations, we're, we're coming back to the Garden, aren't we? At least Israel is coming back to the garden, and at least at least the priesthood is coming back, and at least the high priest, at least one of them is coming back to the garden to meet with God, to talk with God. So a representative of the people is coming to meet with and talk with God. And it wasn't just the Ark of the Covenant where we see the cherubim. Look at verse 20, chapter 26 and verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle, the tent, with tin curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. So we, if you keep reading throughout this part of Exodus, you'll see that over and over and over again, there, there are cherub images all over the curtains of the tabernacle. So in a way, obviously, the tabernacle is this mobile sacred place right? A mobile sacred place. And it's obviously a mobile temple. And we might even think about the Garden of Eden as the first temple, because that's what a temple is, right? A temple is a place where God and humans come together. And so the Garden of Eden was the first temple. But we could also kind of think about the tabernacle as a mobile Garden of Eden, right? It is a mobile garden of Eden. This is the place where God and humans get to come together and, and interact and talk with one another. God is building this covenant relationship with his people, and, and he does it in such a way that he's tabernacling, he's camping out with his people. Now, why is that significant? <laughs> What kind of a God does that, right? Not a God that says, hey, come, you meet me here. There are times where God does that. But here's a God that says, I'm going to move with you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to tabernacle with you. I should have put this later in the lesson. But John, when he's introducing us to Jesus, he uses that same kind of language when he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
that word is, is like tabernacled with us. It's what Jesus was doing too, isn't it? That's what Yahweh has always done with his people. This is what the years in the wilderness were. This was God camping with his people, tabernacling with his people, moving with his people, bringing the garden of Eden to them, bringing them back to the garden. Now, of course, it, it's, it's a pale representation and we're still moving towards that, that final ultimate garden of Eden and the tree of life. And it isn't like every single Israelite can come into the, the, the tabernacle. They certainly can't all come into the Holy of Holies. And that's what the whole book of Leviticus is about, isn't it? The whole book of Leviticus is, is to say, you're still flesh and blood. You're still broken. You still have, you still have flesh. And, and even though the Old Testament doesn't use the word flesh like the New Testament does, it's sort of the same idea, isn't it? And we've talked about this a lot here lately, that when the New Testament talks about flesh, it's talking about our, both our morality and our mortality. And so the book of Leviticus talks a lot about all of those realities of life, both the things that we do that make us unclean and unable to come into the presence of God because we've done something that is immoral, we've sinned, but also things that aren't sin. Like it wasn't sin for a woman once a month to be unclean and couldn't come into the presence of God. That's just, that's just part of mortality. It wasn't a sin if your father died and you buried your father and you touched your father's corpse. It wasn't a sin. It wasn't a sin if you touched somebody with leprosy. It wasn't a sin. It's just part of mortality. And all of these things, diseases and death and, and, and just bodily emissions, all of this is about both our morality and our mortality. And God is bringing mortal people closer and closer and closer to himself. And, he, and he's laying out these instructions, not because sometimes we look at the Old Testament or specifically the book of Leviticus. And I mean, people get grossed out by it. I hate the book of Leviticus. It's so bloody. It's so weird. Most People say Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die, right? You know, like you're reading and you get to Leviticus and you're like, okay, I don't know what to do with all of this. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Because it's God's way of saying to his people, I want to be with you. And how can this holy God, this God that is, that is so big and magnificent that he could speak the world into existence, that he could organize all things in a, in a moment, in a matter of days. How could this God dwell with mortal human beings that are flesh and blood, that are dirt people, that are mortal, and that, that do really dumb things? How could this holy God live with this people? And he gives them a process by which they can, for moments at a time, moments at a time, be ceremonially pure so that they could be with God for a moment. But always there's these reminders, still not what I need to be, still not what I want to be. I can't stay in God's presence. Even if it was possible for an Israelite person, a Hebrew person, to not sin, like even if any of them had done that, like not sin, they would still, just natural processes of life, 
they would still be unclean for a big portion of their life and unable to come into the tabernacle. Not because they did anything wrong, but just because they're human. And so there's this need for something to fix what is broken in humanity, what is broken in the world, and reunite humanity, bring them back into the Garden of Eden where there is the tree of life. But until then, until then, as a temporary measure, God makes a covenant with one people, with one family. He says, through you, I'm going to bring the blessings to all the families of the earth. But until then, I want to be with you. I want to partner with you. I'm going to bring you close to me. Isn't that beautiful? And even these sacrifices, I, I recently read a book. I can't remember the author's name, but I had her on my podcast not too long ago. And she described sacrifices in a way I'd never thought about it before. She said, sacrifices are a lot like a, a husband bringing his wife flowers. Now, there's all kinds of reasons a, a husband might bring his wife flowers. One is it's a special day. And on that special day, Valentine's birthday, anniversary, whatever, you bring flowers on that day because it's a special ceremony and you're doing what is expected of you. And other times it's, honey, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And so you're apologizing and trying to make up for something that you did. And other times it's just just because I love you and just because I'm thankful for you. And the sacrifices were like that. Sometimes it was because it was a special ceremony, a special annual ritual. Other times it was a, a sin offering. I, I shouldn't have done this. And other times it was just a thank offering. It was just a way to say, God, I love you. And I'm so thankful for this covenant relationship that I have with you. So if we think about Leviticus as this dirty, weird book, we'll really misunderstand it because it's really beautiful. It's God saying, I want to be with my people. Even if that means me living in a tent, I want to be with my people. The, the holy God who created all things is willing to live in a tent so that he can be with the people that he's chosen. That's an amazing truth, an amazing reality. So we have, we have the, this from Egypt. We have Leviticus, God explaining how all of this is going to work. And then even already them messing that up because they're human and they continue to do that. Um, God tabernacling with his people. And then we have the book of Numbers, right? It's called the book of Numbers because there's a couple of census that are taken. But again, don't, don't get lost in all the names and all of the numbers. Keep reading the big picture story. And in the book of Numbers, God is moving with his people. And where are they moving to? Where, where, they, where, where were they hoping to move to originally? The beginning of Numbers. Promised land, right? Canaan. So they're moving towards Canaan. God promised Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, this land is yours. I'm going to give it to you. And they're moving, and God's moving with them, and they get right up to the edge of the promised land. God said it's filled with milk and honey, kind of reminiscent of even the Garden of Eden idea, right? God is going to, the land is going to vomit the people out of, of the land. God is going to kick them out. New tenants are going to move in. God's going to live with them and dwell with them. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. And they get to the edge and they say, well, we better check this out before we go in. You know, let's not go in guns a blazing. Let's, let's check this out first. See who lives there. See how big they are. See how mighty their armies are. Let's figure this out before we, we go in. So they go and they spy out the promised land in the book of Numbers. Look at Numbers 13, verse 27. Here's the report that the spies bring back. They told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. 
However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Enoch there, giants that live in the land. Now already, what's the problem? Who is with Israel? God, Yahweh is with them. He just brought the biggest empire in the world to its knees. He decimated the gods of Egypt. And now they're going into the land and God has said, this is yours. I promised it to you. It is yours. You're going to inherit this land. And they get there and said, oh, hold on. They're really big. They're really big people. And I'm not sure that we can take them. Verse 29. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with, with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who, came from, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now, again, what's, what's the problem? How, how are they measuring the strength of the people in Canaan? Against what? Against themselves. We're like grasshoppers. And God might say, okay, what's the problem? You know what I could do with grasshoppers? I, I could take them down with grass. I don't need you to be anything but faithful. I don't need you to do anything but believe. That's what I need you to do. Believe, trust me, and I will deliver this people into your hand. But they don't. Why? Because they're like me. Because they're like most of us. And they look at themselves and they say, I'm, I'm weak. I'm helpless. And that, that should cause us to fall at the feet of Yahweh and say, Deliver us, save us, help us. But instead, sometimes we despair and we, and we look to ourselves for strength and then we give up when we don't have it. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Man, alive, Right? Y'all were slaves. You were crying out to God for hundreds of years. Save us. Have you forgotten us? God said, I didn't forget you. He rescues them. And now they say, we really want to go back. It wasn't so bad after all. You know, we are so fickle, aren't we? And we can't read this without thinking about ourselves, I hope. And, and realize how often we don't trust God. And when we find ourselves in a moment where things look hopeless, in a moment where things are overwhelming, but we forget the big picture. We forget the bigger story that we're a part of. And the bigger story that we're a part of says we cannot lose. We are God's chosen people. We belong to him. He's with us. 
And you and I have even more evidence to go on than they did. Sometimes we look back at them and say, wow, you saw the Red Sea parted and you, know, you, you were fed with manna and you had water come out of rocks and you saw the plagues in Egypt. You don't have any excuse for your unfaithfulness, but me, I've never seen any of that stuff. Hold on. You've seen the resurrected Jesus. Maybe not with your eyes, but you've seen the whole story play out. That's a part of the story that they hadn't beheld yet. And you have. You know where the whole story's going. You, you've had the whole revelation spelled out for you. So have I. So maybe they have a little bit more of an excuse than I do or that you do. But we all are so very weak, aren't we? And we lose sight of the big picture that we're a part of. And certainly that's what's happening here. Verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then they said to one another, let's choose a leader. Go back to Egypt. Okay, really? That's where we're going to go now. And, And there were so many times where God has moments like this with Israel. Sometimes where he's like, okay, well, I'm done with (laughs) y'all. And Moses has to intercede for them. But then other times where God says, if that's what you want, then have it. Then take that. If you don't want me to be your provider, if you don't want me to be your protector, if you don't want to live in this covenant relationship, good, bad, and ugly, come what may, if you don't want this, then see how it is without me protecting you and delivering you. And so for a time, what what happens for the next 40 years? They wander in the wilderness, back into the wilderness, wander and wander and wander. A trip that should have taken them a very short time now is going to take them a generation until that entire generation dies off. God says, fine, if you don't want to go into the promised land, I'm not going to make you go into the promised land. I'm giving you this, but if you don't want this, I'm not going to force it on you. Now you get to wander around and then we'll, we'll have this discussion again in another 40 years. Because, you know, after all, a day to the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. You know, this is no big deal. So, so you, you just wander around for a little bit. We'll come back and revisit this idea in the next generation. And that's exactly what happened. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And along the way, Israel does what Israel does, what humanity does, wrestles with God, argues with God, complains against God. Why are you doing this? Why are you so mean to me? Why don't you help me? Why don't you deliver me? Complaining and complaining, always saying this is worse than it was back in Egypt. Look at chapter 21 of Numbers, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Again, I mean, there's so many themes. We could spend forever just focusing on themes. Serpents, right? All the way back to the garden. Not trusting God. Trying to do things our own way. Suffering the consequences of our lack of faith and trust in God and doing things God's way. Uh, Death coming as a result of sin. Verse 7. 
And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So again, even though, even though there has been a lack of gratitude, and, and especially in the ancient world, a lack of gratitude was about the worst sin that you could commit. A lack of gratitude towards God or towards some benefactor or towards each other. In fact, for a long time, we had a word like that even in English, right? An ingrate, right? An ingrate is an ungrateful person that is living a life that just doesn't reflect the gratitude they should have for what they've received. And in the ancient world, there was nothing worse than being an ingrate, nothing worse than being ungrateful and not living with honor and respect towards the one who had done some great thing for you. But in, in spite of the fact that they were, as we all have been, ungrateful, 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 rebellious, complaining, God still has mercy. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is full of grace and mercy. And all they have to do is ask. All they have to do is repent. All they have to do is trust God. Okay, pray for us, Moses. We need intercession. Moses prays for them and God delivers. God brings life. They brought death into the camp through their rebellion and God brings life back into the camp. God instructs them to lift up the serpent on the the pole, the bronze serpent. They look to it. It's all they have to do. Again, this idea of salvation by grace through faith, that's that's not just a New Testament idea. That's not a Paul idea. That's all throughout the Bible, isn't it? Abraham saved. It was counted to him as righteousness, his faith. The people of Israel right here, they're saved by grace. It's God's gift. They didn't earn it. They didn't earn it. Oh, nope, sorry. You got to pray a little harder, guys. Nope, sorry. You're not really sorry enough. No, they didn't earn it. They had faith. Because they had faith, God showed them grace and mercy. And he gave them life. They had brought death and God gives them life. So I want us to see how the New Testament not only picks up on all of these themes, it isn't just that that the New Testament writers are, are taking ideas from the Old Testament. It's it's that the New Testament writers, the apostles, Jesus himself, are saying, this is the story we're still a part of. We haven't changed stories here. This is still the same story. It's just that now, now entrance into the story of Israel is by Jesus. Not by being born Jewish, not by being born an Israelite, not by being circumcised or eating kosher foods or keeping the Sabbath, but entrance into this story is by faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And now you get to be a part of this story. But as as members of this family, as participants in this story, as characters in this story, you have to learn from the chapters that preceded yours, don't you? You have to learn from those chapters previous. Uh, so, so we look at the, the New Testament and we see, oh, I meant, to put, I meant to put all these on the screen and I didn't. I'm sorry, I didn't make slides for this. But, but let me give you three different ways. And we already mentioned one from John 1 about how 
John borrows that language of tabernacling. That, that would be one example. Uh, but let me give you a couple more, even before we get to some of these specific passages. Number one way that Jesus and the apostles use the idea of the wilderness in what they're communicating is this. Like Israel, Jesus was tested in the wilderness for how many periods of time? 40. Do you think Matthew was, was uh, giving us important details there? Do you think that, that he was intending for us to say, oh, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Do you think he was hoping that his audience would pick up on the fact that Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years? That this period of 40 is about testing and trial? Now, when Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, did they pass the test or fail the test? For the most part, they failed the test, didn't they? They failed the test. When we're tried for 40 days, we've failed the test. And so this, this idea of the wilderness is that we need a, a savior. We need an Israel that's a better Israel, an Israel that can stand the test of 40 periods of time and succeed and be faithful and trust Yahweh. And that's what we get in Jesus, don't we? Not only a better Moses, but it's almost like Jesus is Israel, right? Jesus is born in the promised land. And then right after his birth, where does he go? Egypt, right? Just like Israel. And then, and then Jesus, he crosses through the water in his baptism. And then immediately after he crosses through the water in his baptism, he goes to the wilderness, sounding familiar, right? Goes to the wilderness for 40 periods of time and is tested. And there's a serpent there too, right? And he's tested and he passes the test. And every time Jesus is tested, he responds to the test with a quote from this period of Israel's history, specifically from the book of Deuteronomy. And he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy to say, I am the better Israel. I'm not going to fall for your tricks. I'm not going to lose faith in my father. I'm going to trust him and I'm going to do what's right. Okay, so like Israel, Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 periods of time. That's number one. Number two, Jesus has been lifted up like the bronze serpent, right? To give life to dying people who believe in him. This is what Jesus says in John 3 verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Now, is Jesus talking about lifted up in his crucifixion or lifted up as in his ascension? And I think the answer is yes, yes. John kind of puts those two ideas together. That when Jesus is crucified, he's being exalted. He's being coronated. He's, Jesus is saying, I'm being lifted up, even on the cross, like the bronze serpent, that if you look to me, if you believe in me, you'll live. You'll live. Otherwise, you're dying, all of you, because you've all been bitten by the serpent. All of you have been bitten by the serpent. All of you have been tricked by the serpent. All of you have lost faith in God, not only in Israel, but all of humanity. All of humanity has become the serpent's victims, you're all sick, you're all dying, and Jesus is giving life to dying people. And all you have to do is repent, look to him, believe in him by grace through faith. God is continuing to show mercy to humanity. This has always been God's plan. 
And, and Jesus is saying, and the apostles are saying, you get to be a part of that story. You're in the wilderness, you've been bitten by the serpent, and now you can look to the bronze serpent on, this, on the pole. You can look to Jesus on the cross. You can look to Jesus that is reigning at the right hand of the Father and live. He will give you the gift of life. Then finally, number three, even after being liberated from slavery, Christians still must be diligent to not be like Israel in the wilderness, right? We have to learn from this not to repeat the same mistakes because even though they were saved, they didn't all continue to be saved. So the idea that once you're saved, you can't be lost, that's not what the story of the wilderness wandering teaches us, is it? It teaches us that even after you've been liberated from sin, you can still fall. And the, the New Testament writers, they echo that idea over and over again. 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to go through this quickly. I know I'm running out of time. 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, right? He's saying the, the exodus from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea was a baptism of sorts, and they were baptized into Moses. They were saved, they were delivered, they were rescued, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Again, we try to say, well, you know, that's different. That was a different kind of salvation. Ours is a different kind of salvation. Wait a second. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying they experienced what you're experiencing. You're, you're drinking from the rock that is Christ. You're being nourished by Christ. So were they. You've been baptized. So were they. You've been rescued. So were they. What you're experiencing, they experienced. They are our fathers. Even if you're Gentiles, and most of this audience were Gentiles, he says, they're your fathers now too. And so now you have to learn not to do what they did. You're experiencing what they experienced. And then it says, verse six, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul says it wasn't written down for them. They died. It didn't do them any good to have this story written down. It was written down for future generations, including ours, that are here at the end of the age. Jesus is coming back. And until then, we're wandering in the wilderness. And we're still vulnerable to the serpent's attacks. We're still vulnerable for falling away as they fell away. Don't do that. Verse 11 now these things, oh, I, I read that. No, now these things happen as, to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This idea that you can't be lost after you've been saved, nothing could be further from what the apostles taught. You, 
you can be just like the people of Israel were. You personally. Israel as a whole, the church as a whole is going to be saved. Now, whether or not you're going to be saved personally, that depends on whether or not you continue in faithfulness or whether or not you fall away as they did. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Hebrews 3, the Hebrew writer says the very same thing about the the wandering in the wilderness. Don't put God to the test. Don't fall away as they did. He says in verse 12, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to sharing Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, he says, they fell. Many of them, not as a whole, God continued to work his plan. But individual Israelites, individual Hebrews, died in the wilderness. And you can die before you get to the promised land if you give up. So press on, persevere, endure, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He says here at the last, or in chapter four, verse 11, he says this, let us therefore, and again, he's borrowing the same language, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, the Sabbath rest of God, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive, to enter the rest. So many of them did not make it to the promised land, including, by the way, who? Moses. Even Moses didn't make it to the promised land. Don't let that be you. You have an inheritance. You have the promises of God. You have the presence of God. God is with you and in you. You are, we are the tabernacle of God. We are the temple of the living God. He is living in us and with us. And we have the whole story of redemption laid out for us. And he's with us. And we know these things to be true. But in the moment, we can get overwhelmed and be deceived and fall away. So the Hebrew writer is writing to discouraged people who are tempted to give up and to give in. And he says, remember the people that fell in the wilderness and strive to enter the rest of God. He's right there with you. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your story of redemption and how you loved your people through it all, how you continued to extend mercy and grace and hope and love so that eventually the story could come to Jesus and that eventually we might even be part of that story. Father, help us to learn from those who who persevered in faith and to also learn from those who didn't. Help us, Father, to avoid making the same mistakes that they made. Help us, Father, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.